Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, we are back on our normal podcast series with the story of Minglan or Zhifo, Zhifo, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. And we'll discuss episode 56 and the first 10 minutes or so of episode 57. We will wrap up Shang-Chi shortly in another episode, so please stay tuned. Coming back from the holidays has uh, definitely stressed our bandwidth, so we appreciate the patience. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas, or else email us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. Please also leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. Also, if you have not already, please check out our website to see which dramas we are currently watching or our drama reviews. I'm going to write up my final thoughts for Luoyang and uh, Sword Snowstride to start the new year, so please stay tuned for that. As for the next drama we'll discuss on this podcast, it seems that by popular demand, and it's not even a question, everyone wants us to head back to the Qing Dynasty with the story of Yanxi Palace. We are currently drafting how we want to uh, recap the drama since we've talked a lot about the Qing Dynasty already. So if there are major themes or items from the drama you want us to discuss, please leave us a note. And don't worry, I know there are other dramas that folks want us to talk about. We will certainly work on the other dramas to discuss because we also do want to move on to different historical time periods. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's start our podcast episode. As we usually do, we will start off with a episode recap and then move on to history and finally touch on some book differences. I'm not going to lie. Today's episode was a little dry or is a little dry, um, at least the subject matter. I feel like every time I rewatch this drama, I'm kind of fast forwarding through this episode because it's primarily about politics. So we will spend a decent amount of time dissecting the two main political factions discussed in the drama. The main conflict is the power struggles between the emperor and the empress dowager. The Empress Dowager doesn't want to relinquish power while the Emperor wants to start enacting new policies, but is unable to with the uh, Empress Dowager kind of hanging over his head. To continue to hint at the Empress Dowager that she should step down, the conversation has actually now shifted to the title of the Emperor's birth father. Because he was not the Emperor, uh, this is a little tricky and thus drawing the ire of the Empress Dowager. So for this episode, we move away from the woes of Gu Tingye and his sadness that his wife doesn't get jealous over him and focus on politics. I think now that we've seen so many, I guess, palace dramas or historical dramas, we expect that the Empress Dowager is going to be a force to be reckoned with and that is exactly what she is in this drama. She knows how to play the game just as well as any man, and we see that on full display. We pick up right where the previous episode left off. Gu Tingye was punished by the Empress Dowager with 20 canings for insubordination and has been hauled home by his servants. He's now on a stretcher who 
still refuses to go back to his master bedroom with Minglan and insists on going to the study. Minglan, who is surprised and worried about this news, rushes over to him. Gu Tingye is, of course, happy to see her, and despite his injuries, is all smiles and jokes. After dismissing the servants, Gu Tingye reveals to Minglan that this was all an act devised by the emperor in which Gu Tingye willingly acted as his pawn in a chess game against the Empress Dowager. Listeners, please pay attention to the fact that Gu Tingye's actions in court the previous episode were agreed upon by the emperor. This will come to our attention later. Back in the palace, the Empress Dowager has gotten word that eunuch Li will be speaking to Gu Tingye's younger brother, and concubine Liu is walking with the Emperor. The Empress Dowager is much more worried, or I would say places more importance, on concubine Liu's conversation with the Emperor. As we see, the concubine interestingly stands with the emperor, telling him that whoever he wants to call his father is up to him. Why this is interesting is because we've seen concubine Liu very close to the empress dowager. Why would concubine Liu not persuade the emperor against his idea of naming his father the royal father and push the empress dowager's agenda? That's odd because if the Empress Dowager and concubine Liu were, you would say, on one team, why isn't she um, pushing the Empress's agenda, as I mentioned before, and saying, hey, you probably, to the Emperor, you probably should not name your father the royal father? Hmm. I'll give my hunch afterwards. Out in a local restaurant, Gu Tingye's younger brother, Gu Tingwei, meets a eunuch named Li, who works for the emperor, in an effort to gather some information about Gu Tingye. Gu Tingwei not so subtly bribes the eunuch and asks if the emperor was offended by Gu Tingye's words at court that led to his caning by the empress dowager. Eunuch Li responds that the Gu family should think nothing of it because Gu Tingye is favored by the emperor. But it's just natural that the Empress Dowager should be angry with him. Gu Tingwei doesn't really think much of it and leaves with his information. These words, of course, travel fast to the evil stepmother-in-law or Madame Qin's ears. Gu Tingwei, her son, doesn't think Gu Tingye is in any trouble, but Madame Qin picks up on the or the but that the eunuch used. She thinks there's more meaning to these words. Why inform Gu Tingwei if it truly was nothing? But Gu Tingwei waves it off because everyone knows the Empress Dowager and the Emperor aren't united. Madame Qin, though, has other thoughts. When both the Empress Dowager's eunuch and the Emperor's eunuch are saying the exact same thing, something must be up. She just can't figure it out yet. What this is hinting at is that the eunuchs on both of these sides are perhaps connected, but it sounds like they might be connected for the Empress Dowager. Hmm. We move on to now the bigger conflict uh, or the orchestrated conflict in this episode. 
Prime Minister Han Zhang requests an audience with the Empress Dowager. She refuses to grant an audience and instead has her eunuchs inform the Prime Minister that she is ill. The Prime Minister, though, still pushes for her approval and seal of naming the Empress' birth father as the royal father. Several hours pass by, but the Prime Minister is still waiting outside for the Empress Dowager's decree. The Empress Dowager finally gives in, and it seems that it took her some time to uh, plot her next move because she agrees to a decree uh, and will not only grant the Emperor's wishes to have his father be conferred to as the Emperor, but for his birth mother to be posthumously named as Empress. This is a very high honor. Her eunuch is even surprised to hear this and is even more surprised when the Empress Dowager orders the imperial kitchens to serve a meal to the prime minister, and she and him will have a meal together. Mm, Has the empress dowager finally relented out of the goodness of her heart? Has she totally just backed down? I mean, that was pretty quick and a complete 180. As we know, there is absolutely no way she just suddenly becomes so nice. During dinner back at the Cheng Gardens, Gu Tingye analyzes the current political situation at court for Minglan and for us, the audience. I think it's quite cute to see Minglan feeding Gu Tingye. Gu Tingye was pushed to make a stand during court after discussing with the prime minister in the previous episode. The prime minister picked a time when the rest of the emperor supporters were out of the capital. So that Gu Tingye as the sole supporter of the emperor left from Yuzhou would bear the brunt of the wrath from the empress dowager. The rest of the emperor's faction would return to court unscathed and can continue to push forward the point whilst Gu Tingye is nursing his injury. Gu Tingye tells Minglan that, as he was a supporter of the emperor way back when he was just a prince, he had of course to stand by the emperor. But I personally think that the emperor also chose him to take the fall because Gu Tingye inherited the marquee title that is independent of his support to the emperor. If the empress dowager punished Gu Tingye too severely, she would also had probably been reprimanded by the imperial censors for mistreating loyal subjects. So in a way, Gu Tingye had to be the one to make the stand for the emperor and, of course, be punished by the Empress Dowager. If it was anyone else, the Empress Dowager would have had much more sway with political opinion and accused that person of biases at court. That's a pretty pretty intricate plan, I would say, from the emperor. Minglan then points out that the emperor's current actions aren't supported by precedent or history. He doesn't have a strong case to make. Minglan states that if every adopted person who enjoys the wealth and status of his or her adopted family for a time and then simply reverts back to his original name, how would that be justified in the eyes of the world? I also mentioned this in the previous episode that this was not supported by precedent. The emperor does not have much standing as there was, as I said, clear precedent that the adopted family would be the primary family to pass down the lineage and titles. 
Milan then surprises Gu Tingye and, quite frankly, myself as well, with her next analysis of what the emperor also wanted to accomplish with Gu Tingye's words at court. Minglan compares the emperor's current actions to her father's actions back when the emperor or the previous emperor was deciding on a crown prince. Her father, Sheng Hong, stuck his head down and did not engage with partisan politics because it actually benefited him to get a clear sense of the situation before acting. Well, this was all based on Grandma Sheng's advice. So once again, a point for Grandma Sheng. As we see, Sheng Hong has done pretty well for himself and his decision to stay out of partisan politics will be also on display later in the next episode. The emperor is doing the same. He's trying to figure out what is happening or where the political winds are turning in this debate. Notice how in the previous episode, the emperor didn't really say anything. He wanted to watch on the sidelines as Gu Tingye and the Empress Dowager battle it out. If court favors him, then he'll continue to pursue the topic. If it doesn't, then he'll hold off on pressing this point until a more opportune moment. But what is more is that Gu Tingye is now safe from further retribution that may come uh, the Emperor's way because he's already injured. So in one, I guess, caning from the Empress Dowager to Gu Tingye, we already see that kind of Team Emperor and Team Empress Dowager are kind of trading um, the preliminary blows against each other on this topic. We return to the Empress Dowager and the Prime Minister who are having a meal together and the Prime Minister makes his case that he doesn't want court to be embroiled in these rights issues, else it affects the foundation of the, uh, the empire. The Empress Dowager, in a very surprising move, relents and agrees. But like we said, does she really? Oh, absolutely not. She is just playing her own game of chess, or Chinese Go, if you will, and she's got everyone wrapped up in her finger. This is certainly not a woman to be trifled with. Let's see what she does, and we will break down her machinations. The Empress Dowager agrees to have the Emperor call his birth father the Royal Father, and then she tells the Prime Minister to write the decree, and she will simply stamp her seal on it. She's not going to write it herself. The Prime Minister walks out with the stamped decree, and the Empress Dowager kind of escorts him out, but is stumbling a bit, claiming that she's had too much to drink. The Prime Minister doesn't really notice and walks out all pleased with himself. At court, I guess the next day, the two factions are back sniping at each other, with a now super annoying, in my view, young Duke Ti Hung leading the charge against the Prime Minister. Notice how Shen Guojiu is now back and the biggest proponent for the emperor apart from the prime minister, since Gu Tingye is still on sick leave or injured leave, so to say. The prime minister reveals or presents the Empress Dowager's decree. And it's surprising for the rest of court because the Empress Dowager has agreed to not only acknowledge the emperor's birth father, but also agreed to posthumously confer the Empress title to 
his mother. Chi Hung and his faction refused to believe this decree and attacked the prime minister of flattery and raised the opinion that he should be demoted. The prime minister, can you believe that? Chi Hung noted that the Empress Dowager was not at court today and presses to reinstate the Empress Dowager to listen in again and basically do the Chui Lian Ting Zheng that we talked about before. This puts the emperor in a really tough situation because that is pretty much the last thing he wants and is exactly what he's been trying to move away from. All of this talk about recognizing his father was really only to try to push the Empress Dowager away from having authority at his court and stop her from listening in and making decisions for him. As Gu Tingye explains to Minglan, once the Empress Dowager backed off, the Emperor also backed off. He didn't say that, yes, I want my mother to also be uh, posthumously declared an Empress, just my father. This power conflict is really easy to understand because it's pretty much a new power coming in while the old regime is trying to hold on. All of these other things happening with naming a royal father was more or less kind of mirroring or masking the, the true simple conflict that is happening. For the last quarter of episode 56, we will see the Empress Dowager continue to play her chess game against the Emperor. She targets Ti Hung as her willing pawn. It's quite glorious to watch, actually. Ti Hung's parents can tell that Ti Hung's jumping headfirst into matters he doesn't understand, but are powerless to do anything. And once again, we are appreciative, or I am, that Minglan went with Gu Tingye instead. The Empress Dowager has summoned Qi Hong and puts on a beautiful act. First, she gives a sob story saying how she wanted nothing more than to have a harmonious relationship with the Emperor and Prime Minister. Then she paints the Prime Minister in a very nefarious light, stating that the Prime Minister got her so drunk that she eventually agreed to sign the decree or stamp the decree. This is an outright lie. As we saw, nothing of the sort happened. She got herself a little bit tipsy, but the decree was agreed upon before she even started eating. The Empress Dowager then goes on to say that the late emperor and herself decided on the current emperor during a time of crisis. The late emperor instructed the current emperor to rule benevolently and to take care of the Empress Dowager. But, she says, this was all a farce. What else can she do? She has nowhere to go. The Empress Dowager, in tears, tells Chi Hong to be nice to his mother because look at her right now. Chi Hong is flabbergasted. How could the Prime Minister do this? He summons the records from the Imperial Kitchens and confirms that the Prime Minister and the Empress Dowager did indeed have a meal together. Si Hung returns home to inform his fellow officials of what he's learned. His faction resolves to file complaints against the prime minister the very next day. In the background, Si Hung's parents are like, well, I guess he has to learn the hard way. And buddy, you really do learn the hard way. <laughs> At court, Si Hung makes a stand and accuses the prime minister of 
forging the decree and taking advantage of the Empress Dowager to stamp the decree while she was drunk. The Prime Minister, of course, denies any of this. Xi Hung's faction then used more details on rights, R-I-T-E-S, to forcibly reopen the discussion of naming the emperor's father as the royal father, accusing the prime minister and his faction of putting the emperor in a non-virtuous position. Xi Hung's faction once again presses to have the empress dowager attend court to prove their claim. The prime minister says, fine, let's have the empress dowager come to court and share the truth. He believes he has nothing to worry about. Well, the Empress Dowager is brought to court and the Prime Minister requests that the Empress Dowager clear his name and inform all of court that he didn't forge the decree nor force the Empress Dowager's hand. Uh, the Empress Dowager simply just replies with, Or, what else is there to say about this matter? She does not admit that the prime minister and her had a cordial meal and conversation, nor does she admit that she agreed to any proposition. She only admits that the seal was stamped on the decree. What more is there to say? What a masterclass of muddying the waters. The implication is quite clear that uh, she may have been forced to do something that she didn't want to, even though she didn't outright say those specific words. The folks like Ti Hong will certainly cry out that that was her meaning. Finally, the prime minister recognizes that uh, he deliberately walked into a trap that the Empress Dowager set for him. She doesn't lie at court, but her words to Ti Hong are an admission that. Uh, you know, she's being held captive by the prime minister and isn't able to freely discuss the matter. This leads us straight to episode 57. The Empress Dowager continued her show in front of the entire court to make it seem that she was coerced and intimidated into approving the decree. She leaves court allowing Ti Hong to step up. Once she leaves, Ti Hong, who is so upset by the supposed bullying that the Empress Dowager was subjected to, he formally kneels down and requests that the Emperor demote his position at court because he cannot do his job, it seems like. This is his threat to the Emperor. He won't resign if he takes a look at his allies and recognizes the evil ones that are pushing the Emperor to make bad decisions. The Emperor should remove the titles of the Prime Minister and his allies. So it comes down to this. The emperor should demote the ones he thinks is incorrect. Either Ti Hong and his allies, or else the prime minister and his. Here we see the challenges of being emperor because he's categorically being bullied and tricked on both sides. He's in the tough spot by the likes of Ti Hong, who thinks he's actually doing the right thing and doesn't realize he's being used as a pawn. In the end, the emperor angrily decrees that Ti Hong and group are to be demoted. And that is where we'll end this recap. So in this round, the emperor ultimately won some independence from the empress dowager, but lost a lot of authority and loyalty by a large portion of court. It's not a good position for him either. And so 
as we see, the Empress Dowager did not go down without a fight. Now the Emperor is in a much more precarious position than he would have liked. A couple of things before we move on to the historical analysis. Did you see that when these factions of court ministers kneeled down to force the emperor to make a decision, there was a brief shot of Sheng Hong and Sheng Changbai, Minglan's father and brother. Neither of them kneeled to bully the emperor, which you also saw Changbai being more resolute than his father. His father kind of turned back, peeked at his son. This echoes the earlier view that Minglan uh, shared that uh, they should try to stay bipartisan and shy away from taking sides. It's extremely rare, as we saw most of court leaning one way or another, but I think this speaks to their character in some sense. Well, Changbai is more than Sheng Hong's. They did not partake in bullying the emperor, which I think will be recognized uh, in the future. Next, um, I want to briefly discuss the conversation that Madame Qin has with her maid in the episode because it's actually quite funny. Madame Qin is beside herself with glee that Gu Tingye and Minglan are not sleeping in the same room anymore. And it seems as though Gu Tingye has lost favor from both the emperor and the empress dowager because no one has paid him a visit. What's funny to me is that she has this completely wrong. Sure, Minglan and Gu Tingye aren't sleeping in the same room, but it's not like they aren't spending all of their time together. Yes, they have a small quibble, but nothing as Madame Qin imagines, where the couple is at odds with each other and Gu Tingye is ready to go and sleep with the concubine. Next, Gu Tingye and the emperor were in complete agreement with regards to his punishment, and the two are waging a long political fight against the empress dowager. That's what I meant earlier, to pay attention that, hey, the emperor knew full well that Gu Tingye probably would be punished. It seems as though people have come to visit, but just not formally. In a previous scene, Gu Tingye mentioned that the prime minister and Shen Guozhou will visit disguised as servants. So once again, Madame Qin is completely wrong about this point. She is all smug with her knowledge, believing that Gu Tingye is done at court, but she doesn't realize that she's the one who's been hoodwinked. After rewatching the episode for this time, um, knowing what will happen, <laughs> I was giggling to myself looking at Madame Qin's face. Um, as I said, all smug, but Gu Tingye and Minglan know that they have to be wary of her. So they're upping their game against this vile woman. All right, that was the episode recap. So let's move on to the historical analysis. The main topic is, of course, the royal father debate. So let's take a look at what actually happened in history. Hint, the emperor doesn't come out very well. The debate in history, as I mentioned in the last episode, is called Pu Yi. So Song Yingzong, the emperor, was finally declared crown prince in 1062. But when he ascended the throne, 
He was quite disrespectful to the late Emperor Song Renzong and the Empress Dowager Cao Taihou. According to an article、uh, I read, during the funeral for the late Emperor Song Renzong, the Emperor, or the current Emperor Song Yingzong, at first refused to attend the funeral and was finally persuaded to go by highly ranked、uh, remonstrance official Sima Guang. But the Emperor Song Yingzong did not shed a single tear. His behavior was very poorly received at court, and word of mouth was not good for him. The Emperor Song Yingzong then began butting heads with the Empress Dowager Cao Taihou, not unlike in the drama here. But in history, Song Yingzong was not as、uh, I would say nice about it, and did not have as grandiose of plans as we see in the drama. Shortly after Song Yingzong、uh, ascended the throne, Prime Minister Han Qi and official Ouyang Xiu presented a proposal to name the emperor's father as the royal father, and sent this for approval to the Minister of Rights. As mentioned in the previous episode, precedent was not in the emperor's favor. So, what was he to do? I would say that the prime minister and his supporters wanted to gain favor with the new emperor, and therefore pushed this proposal. Unfortunately, they underestimated the strength of the late emperor's legacy and how much the remonstrance officials were willing to fight for that legacy, and they put up a very fierce fight. This debate lasted eighteen months and was named as the debate of Pu because the emperor's birth father's title was the Prince of Pu. The drama condenses a lot of that to, of course, just two episodes, but the opposing officials. Did push forth demotion for the prime minister for the fact that he dared to put this proposal on the table. In a surprising turn for the remonstrance officials, an official edict came down from the empress dowager, stating that she agreed to have the emperor name his birth father as the royal father. What happened? The remonstrance officials did some digging and found out that during a banquet. The emperor, along with the prime minister and other officials, got the empress dowager drunk by constantly toasting her. In her drunken state, she stamped her seal on the edict. The remonstrance officials were enraged at this. At court, they again pushed to demote the prime minister and his faction, giving the emperor an ultimatum to either take back the imperial edict or else demote them. The emperor. Not surprisingly, demoted these remonstrance officials. Huh? Doesn't that sort of sound like what happened in the drama? So, in the drama, the Empress Dowager lied, saying that the Prime Minister got her drunk and forced her to stamp the edict. In history, the opposite was true. The Empress Dowager did get drunk, and in her drunken state, agreed to stamp the edict. So, basically, what Qi Hong was accusing. The minister, the prime minister of doing, actually did happen in real history, in real life. Overall, this plan or plot is very reprehensible of the emperor.、Um, in the drama, it was more the empress dowager kind of scheming on this, but in history, the emperor got what he wanted using this way of you know getting the empress dowager drunk. The emperor as Uh, in the drama, did demote these officials. 
However, dear listeners, do you think uh, anything actually came of this? Why, of course not. As fate would have it, the emperor Song Yingzong dies only four years into his reign. So basically two and a half years after this debate. Court didn't even have time to officially pass down any subsequent edicts or build memorials before the emperor died. His son, Song Shenzong, didn't want anything to do with this because he didn't want to anger the court anymore, so he didn't push to pass any of these edicts. So in the end, nothing happened. It was all, in my opinion, quite a waste of time because the emperor pushed this very uh, forcefully. The empress dowager backed down. This kind of sullied the emperor's name. And in the end, he died and his father or his birth father still wasn't named royal father. Now, let's move on to Han Qi or Han Zhang, um, as is the character's name in the drama. Han Qi, we introduced him when discussing episode 46 and 47. But I want to give him more airtime today as he was very crucial in the whole royal father debate. So let's introduce Han Zhang, or in real life, Han Qi. He was born in 1008 and died in 1075. He was a very important political figure who was active during the reigns of three emperors. He had a brilliant political mind and was a very shrewd politician. He passed his imperial exams in 1027 at the age of 19 and steadily rose through the ranks, getting praise for his handling of natural disasters in Sichuan and his ability to stamp out corruption. In 1038, the prince of Xiping rebelled and established the kingdom of Xixia. Han Xi led troops against the new threat and brokered an uneasy truce. He became prime minister in 1058 and helped enact many reforms with regards to agriculture and taxes. He was also a noted calligrapher of his time, and you can actually still see examples of his calligraphy um, if you Google it. Moving on, we'll close off this history section with explaining some court titles and positions. There were a lot being thrown around, and I'll be honest, I never really fully understood them, kind of just watched it and just, you know, go over my head. So we're doing some research for it to make more sense. First is Zhongshu Sheng, the palace secretariat. Its earliest iteration originated in the Han Dynasty and evolved over time with varying levels of power and responsibilities. Generally, it was responsible for policymaking and drafting of imperial decrees. In early Song Dynasty, however, its power was greatly diminished and therefore was largely responsible for processing less important documents. In this drama, it seems like Zhong Shusheng is where uh, the prime minister was more or less aligned. Next, we have Yu Shutai, or the censorate. The censorate is a supervisory agency created all the way back during the Qin Han period, and it gained more power during the Tang Dynasty uh, by being appointed judicial authority. This agency monitors courts and identifies when infractions against rules such as corruption occurred, generally by court officials. 
Now, part of that are the remonstrance officials or Tian Guan. This is the position Ti Hung held at court. He is a remonstrance official as part of Jian Yuan, which is, I would say, the uh, remonstrance bureau. I don't think there's a really good um, translation for it. And that Jian Yuan was created in the Song Dynasty and worked together under the censorate or Yu Shitai. Jian Yuan and Yu Shitai had similar but separate responsibilities, where Jian Yuan's primary job was to review policy issues to raise to the emperor to say whether or not they were effective or if there are issues that need to be fixed. And their job was sometimes to even point out the errors of the emperor himself. So as we see, in this case, Zhong Shu Sheng, or the palace secretariat, is on one side, and Yu Shitai, where you have the Jian Guan and Jian Yuan, are on the other side. One side is making all of these new policies or trying to create a new policy, the other is saying that this policy is probably not good for the empire. And there we go. Now I know what these mean. So when I watch future dramas, I can see if they're, you know, doing a good job on naming titles and whatnot. All right. That was a lot of history. Uh, let me conclude with book differences. Not too much to touch on today because much of this doesn't actually occur in the book since these events are based on history and of course the book was not. We converge more with the book starting in the rest of episode 57. But what I do want to say is I like that we have these events um, brought forth for the viewers because actually this debate of Pu hasn't been really shown on uh historical dramas, I think, if ever. So it's great to see kind of the two factions battling it out if in the drama it kind of switches the sides of who is right and who is wrong. <laughs> At least in my opinion. And that is it for today. I certainly learned a ton doing research for this episode, so I hope you all enjoyed it. As always, feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions on what was discussed on our podcast. We would also like to point you to our sponsor, Jubao TV, where if you are in the U.S., you are able to check out a number of Chinese dramas and movies for free. Those do have English subtitles and can be accessed via the website Jumo, XUMO, or on TV through Xfinity and Cox Contour. The music you heard is the Zither piece called Lan with sheet music by Bingjiu Wo Jun and played by Karen. See you all in the next episode.